Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for spiritual exiles, for all of us who are looking for faith and spirituality outside the fences and the walls of institutional Christianity. We've got a really great, really interesting group of guests for this episode. Uh, But before we get to that, I'd like to quickly remind you that you can find all of the content that our team is creating for our community on our website, accidentaltomatoes.com. You can go there to find every episode of the podcast, as well as blog entries on a wide variety of topics related to religious deconstruction, social justice, and liberation theology. And if you're inspired by our work and would like to support us, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes to learn how you can help us create and curate content that's helping people navigate the difficulties of spiritual trauma, deconstruction, and just trying to build a more just and inclusive world. Accidental Tomatoes is the official content site for New Wineskins, a fully inclusive, non-traditional online faith community rooted in deep, authentic conversation. New Wineskins is a member of the Reconciling Ministries Network and is open to anyone seeking to explore faith and spirituality on a deeper level than many can experience in the institutional church. If you're looking for a community where you can express your deepest doubts, ask your hardest questions, and be welcomed unconditionally, feel free to visit one of our weekly Zoom gatherings. You can learn more by visiting newwineskinsnetwork.org. For this episode, I'm really excited to introduce uh, three guests uh, for for this interview. Uh, We have Marcy Bain, Lisa Bainey, and Brian Reed from the Improv Therapy Group. And we had a really fascinating conversation about how the art of improv can be used to help people process everything from recovery to religious trauma, and how the improv rule of yes and can unlock a wide range of healing and restoration in therapeutic settings. So please give a warm Accidental Tomatoes welcome to Marcy and Lisa and Brian from Improv Therapy Group. The humor is found in the art of authenticity. So the more you put yourself out there, the more you work with your peers and collaborate, the more you live into yes and, you will be amazed at the result of a scene or a story. You you can't pre-plan or script. The magic moments just come in people trusting each other. Well, hi there, friends, and welcome to another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I am so excited today for this episode. In fact, I'm a little bit overwhelmed because this is the first time that I've done a solo interview with three guests, but I think it's going to be worth it. Uh, We have Lisa Bainey, we have Marcy Bain, and we have Brian Reed, who are all from uh, the Improv Therapy Group. So we're going to talk about improv as, well, we're going to talk about a lot of really cool stuff. Um, We're going to talk about improv as therapy. We're going to talk about uh, a specific subset of that that's improv for clergy. We're going to talk about improv as it intersects with like spiritual deconstruction and things like that. And I've already said way more than I intended to say, because you three are the experts in this. Uh, So um, I'm going to allow you all to introduce yourselves. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Um, Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do with Improv Therapy Group. 
Thanks for having us, Joe. This is super fun. I am the Chief Improv Officer of Improv Therapy Group. That's a pretty fun title, I think. Everybody wants that on their business right. cards, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been on the faculty of the Second City in Chicago for over 20 years. So I've always been into improv and super passionate about improv. And uh, I was one of the first teachers at Second City to get to teach in the wellness department. We started with some improv for anxiety classes. And then we found that it was so good for that sort of thing that that just blossomed from there um, to the point where I wanted to create a company with some partners called Improv Therapy Group. So we could do more of teaching therapists to use improv. Um, and then from that, that grew into improv for clergy and improv for all different folks. Um, and uh, I met Brian at Second City. He came to what we call a wellness jam, which is just uh, a bunch of folks getting together to play some improv games and just to, to feel good and to have some fun together. Uh, and Brian talked about how improv has really changed his life and it really um, hit me in the same way and so I brought Brian on and then Marcy took our program as a therapist and said hey can we do improv for clergy and is the style of improv I said yes we can and uh, that's kind of how we all got connected. That is so fantastic I, I'm already like I've got 22,000 questions <laughs> that I'm burning that but I, I want to hear from you all first so Brian tell us a little bit about your um, connection here. Uh, I'm Ryan Reed. I'm from the southwest side of Chicago uh, my whole life. And in 2017, I entered uh, recovery as I, an alcoholic, had to quit drinking, um, had to. And uh, and that's a whole story. We'll, we'll hear about that, I'm sure, in bits and pieces. But anyways, part of um, in recovery, I, I started doing some improv classes on the recommendation of a friend. And then I started gobbling up improv, kind of like I was gobbling up recovery meetings and like 12 step stuff um, without realizing it. They were kind of telling me the same things. But this was all like kind of out there. I wasn't super present of this. I was going to a lot of improv jams at Second City and then there was a wellness jam. And to me at the time, it was like jam improv. That's what I want to do. And um, I don't know. Uh, life's been different for me since 2017. And I just wound up kind of taking tenants of, of recovery with, you know, take the body and the mind will follow. And um, then I'm in improv and they're saying yes and, and I wound up being just like a visible, vulnerable dude and um, reformed into this person I've always wanted to be when, when life was really rough drinking. And anyways, that visibility and vulnerability and I think my excellent improv skills and humor um, was picked up by Lisa and she invited me uh, to sit in on some recovery related improv classes that improv therapy group does. And within a week of that, you know, I was employed by the company um, to just be that visible, vulnerable dude leading improv classes for recovery. So um, my recovery and improv and spirituality, it's, it's a little Trinity on its own there for me. Very cool. Very cool. Oh, man. There, when you talk about, and, and we'll dig into this a little bit as we get further into the interview, but um, that idea of vulnerability sort of being at the heart of um, of what you're talking about with improv, with improv therapy, um, that really strikes a chord with me. And I think it's going to strike a chord with a lot of our listeners um, who have, that's one of the things that I think folks uh, are are looking so deeply for is spaces where they can be 
honest and vulnerable. Um, and, and so I'm really excited to draw some of that out. Um, Marcy, so you bring this, um, sort of church vibe into the improv therapy thing, right? So, um, what's that all about? Uh, and what's, what's improv for clergy all about? Yeah. So first I want to talk a little bit about how I got connected with the organization. So I am at a kind of at a snail's pace working on my master's degree in counseling. I have been an ordained Presbyterian minister since 2008. And a lot of my call uh, has centered around really these connectivities between spirituality and creativity. So I also lead women's writing groups. I lead different uh, opportunities really to, to find that intersecting space between creativity and spirituality. And I also do advocacy type work. And so using art and different art forms in connection with spirituality to advocate, say, for LGBTQ folks or for raising funds, you know, to help house the unhoused or just all sorts of different concerns, finding this meeting place between where art is a healing force and speaks into our lives, where spirituality can enter into and do that dance with creativity to broaden us, to grow us, to sort of enlarge our understanding of who we are. So I came to this organization, Improv Therapy Group, actually taking a class for their therapists. And in sitting through their level one class for therapists, I just was immediately struck with the connectivity. I could imagine and envision a similar program to what they were putting on for for therapists and then for some of their police officers and for, for all these other groups that they serve with improv, I could imagine creating and standing up a group like this for clergy. And so I pitched their CEO, Angela, and I think at some point I also pitched Lisa and, and then very in short order, improv for clergy was born and it just came together. And this was really in the middle of COVID is where we stood up the first improv for clergy class. And so to the end of what's it about, one of my concerns during COVID, one of the things that I noticed was just the level of burnout that my, mm. my peers and colleagues were experiencing. And I began asking the question, who takes care of the caretakers? There aren't really that many spaces where clergy can come and where they can just sort of feel the relief of nobody demanding something from them, you know, by way of caretaking or all the all the things that clergy do week by week. So often you're you're in a position where people are taking something from you by way of your skills, your time, your energy, your talent, you know, wanting to bend an ear. And those we those of us who do this love the work that we do, but we still experience burnout sometimes. And so there have to be spaces for self-care. There have to be spaces where you can be filled up. So I had envisioned and imagined improv for clergy as a space pretty similar to what we do for the therapist. So, so we put some rules around the space, which is to say it's for clergy. It's an interfaith group. So it is for clergy of all different faith traditions, but it is exclusively a place where clergy can come and their congregants are not there. And so it takes you out of this mode of having to care for a group mm -hmm. and finally being in a position where you can be cared for in a group. 
it is different than a therapy space in that we're not doing therapy, we're doing improv, but doing improv and laughing with your peers and having this connectivity and being able to network and trade ideas can be extremely therapeutic for folks. Mm -hmm. And it's also different from things that you might find kind of within your different denominational groups in that it's opt-in. So like, we're not reporting back to, you know, the Methodist board or the Presbyterian board that someone did or didn't do a good job in improv. This is purely for your own growth and self-development and self-care. And we also wanted to create a piece of this, which was an educational piece. So not just more than just having fun, more than just maybe the healing presence of, of your peers, more than even just the confidentiality piece of you're here and your congregants aren't here. We also wanted there to be a little bit of an educational piece where we could teach you things that you could then use and in your own organizations, whether you be a chaplain, whether you be a congregational pastor, whether you be an interim minister, or whether you're trying to come up with some sort of next generation church or outside the box ministry, we believe that there are things that Improv for Clergy can give you to help you along that path. And oh, the other obvious impact of this is that improv is just really fun. And so the way we do it, it's not competitive. This is not necessarily for people who want to go on and try out for Saturday Night Live. Although if you do, more power to you. We're, in, we're into it. We would support you 100%. But this is a safe place for people who have never, ever done improv before to dabble a toe in the water and say, what is this art form even about? And it's specifically a space that is for clergy for the well-being and benefit and fun and joy and education of those who are clergy. Man, such, this is so, I'm just, I'm so intrigued and fascinated by all of this. One of one of the things that struck me as I listened to you all um, kind of give your introductions is, and this is one of the things that we kind of talk about in, in this podcast space a good bit is where that, that intersection of art and justice, right? And that, that justice piece can take many, many different forms. Um, and, and, and I, I think there's a connection here. Brian, you used a term that, that I'd like for, for one of y'all to unpack a little bit. You, you said, um, yes, and which, you know, it's, it seems to be a very kind of key component to what improv is. So, um, I, I don't, Lisa, do you want to unpack that a little bit? What about yes and, and what is it about yes and, and improv as an art form that, um, that can help equip those of us who are in, you know, justice type movements, liberation type movements? Sure. Yeah. So, um, we use yes and in improv, uh, as a way to show that we are supporting each other and as a way to build our scenes, our stories, whatever we're creating together. Right. So the only way that's going to work is if uh, you make a, a decision or a choice or an initiation, um, I'm going to say yes to whatever you put out there. And I'm going to say, and I'm going to build on that. And then you're going to, yes, whatever I said, and you're going to say, and that and build on that and that's how improv is so collaborative and how we can move things forward and how also we have the confidence to share our ideas and our voices and our comedy and our humor um, when we teach improv as a communication tool we teach yes and to mean um, yes I hear you and here's my truth and we teach that sometimes even in difficult conversations or in crisis even, um, it, a lot of times someone just wants to feel heard. 
They might even know that you can't really agree with them or you can't do what they're asking you to do. But a lot of times half the battle is showing them that you hear them. So to be able to say, yes, I hear you and still hold a boundary and still say my truth or what I'm actually able to do at this moment or what your options are. Right. But that that um, and also that yes, and kind of shows that two opposing truths can live together. Right. Mm, so, yeah. yes, I love my mom and she drives me nuts sometimes. Right. So mm -hmm. so yes. we use yes and a lot of different ways. I'm sure Brian uh, has some other thoughts on yes and. I just wanted to pivot into another uh, grading with the two opposing truths. And this was shared by somebody taking our level one classes and they're just pointing out, yes, life is painful and it's worth living. You know, that, that, that sticks with me. And, um, and, and as Lisa put it, um, but, uh, uh, like yes. And ensures that every voice is heard, you know, it keeps yeah. everything in the yes field. Even if in recovery, when I teach yes, and it, we can still teach it to say, no, I'm not going to the bar with you tonight. I mean, it doesn't mean yes, let's go to the bar. Um, yes, have fun at the bar and I'll talk to you tomorrow morning when you're hungover and I'm on the golf course. <laughs> you know, but point yeah, being, yeah. I think without realizing it, um, yeah, that that exists in in the in the. I'm so grateful that the 12 step rooms I walked into on the south side of Chicago to start this the recovery I went on, they were doing it. They don't talk about yes and and recovery, but it's that. Even a 12 step meeting, I I get to talk and you have to listen. There's not cross. It's like built into it, in in its own totally different recovery. You know, a a big book way, but like there's no crosstalk. And that allows yes and, um, and then you go into improv spaces and yeah. So I just wanted to piggyback to really add on that. Like it ensures every voice is heard. It ensures that your voice is heard. That's what yes and does, regardless of who you are and what you're saying, it's going to uh, ensure that. And that amount of support, uh, I think I, I, you know, as an addict, I, I'm, a, I'm addicted to, for lack of a better term, because I think it was lacking in a lot of departments, including spiritual upbringing and whatnot. Yeah, and for those, Joe, who maybe are working with more traditional uh, language or metaphors, when I think of yes and, I, I think of baptism. And in my tradition, mm. we say, yes, you are a child of God. That's what we're doing in baptism. And the whole church is standing up or signing up to be part of your nurture and care and love and well-being, or maybe even in a more broad or general sense, the idea of God's great yes to us, that we are beloved. Yes, you are beloved. And I want for you all the fullness of joy and love and beauty and truth and the fullness of who you can be and become. That's yes and. I, I love also kind of from a, I guess it's kind of from a spiritual standpoint, but in a very generic way, how that yes and is a really helpful tool for breaking down the false dualities. You know, I, Lisa and Brian, you both talked about how, you know, two seemingly opposing state, statements can also be true, right? Um, and I think that's one of the things that religion has an awful hard time with sometimes is, is to break down those kind of false dualities um, and to be able to say things like, you know, yes, um, you know, life is very difficult in a lot for a lot of people right now. And life is also beautiful, right. And, and worth living uh, and, and all of that. Um, I, I think I want to 
pivot to Brian just a minute because there, there was something in my notes from where Marcy and I were emailing early to, earlier today. Um, and I, I want to I talk a little bit about, um, for you, Brian, in, um, in the recovery aspects, right, of how you're using improv in recovery. Um, how, how that sort of, again, in a generic sense, spirituality um, is formed in community. What, what does improv community do, um, I guess, for that sense of spirituality, for that sense of, you know, a, a higher power, that, the, the kind of language you might use in, in recovery movement? That is that is language that I do like to use. Um, I mean, that I, I higher power is something I identified with relatively quicker, quickly in recovery, coming from a uh, lax Catholic upbringing on the South Side, you know, Irish Catholic from the South Side of Chicago, pretty laxed. And then, you know, agnostic as I got into as I went to Catholic high school, became relatively agnostic. And uh, and then when I was drinking myself to death, I didn't really care <laughs> about that stuff. Um, but yeah, so then again, yeah, 2017, things are reforming and I go, I'm in, I'm in recovery classes and they're talking about higher power and spirituality. And that was a new word to me, you know, again, growing up Catholic, I didn't hear spirit or it didn't stick with me the same. I, I was, I probably wasn't listening in the same way, but, um, that, that, uh, there's a quote I learned from being with this company from Viola Spolin, like the creator of Improv as we know it, which is um, through spontaneity, we are reformed into ourselves. So that exists Ooh. fully in any improv community, because when you're improvising with people and doing yes and, it's it's going to be your authentic self spilling out in the moment and people are yes anding it. And as that was forming, as I, as soon as I started doing improv, I was like, I, I really loved the authentic Brian that was coming out. It reminded me of Brian from before I was 18, before depression and drinking became two, two mighty beasts in my life, you know? And, mm -hmm. and I, you know, and I, that's just my experience, I know, but I, I think that's what a foundational point of the improv community. There's, when I left the South Side and started doing improv, I didn't leave the South Side, but I put it that way because it was like leaving a bubble. I was in a bit of a bubble and there's not a bubble in the improv communities because it's it's very diverse. It's very vocal about, you know, be vocal for yourself and we're going to listen. It's a very empath empathetic community. And um, I don't have the full explanations why, but, you know, I didn't grow up around a lot of artists growing up or even in young adulthood mm. either. And now I'm around artists. and. You know, I went from not having to ever think about pronouns to to being a you know to 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 fighting for pronoun usage and just being an ally for things. And I know I'm on a tangent here, but I mean that that just all happened organically. Kind of you said, like in the broad strokes, that that exists in the improv communities here that I've been a part of in Chicago. And um, I think I'll break it down to there's visibility and vulnerability that is required if you're yes anding. And you're there to laugh too. So yeah, and 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 the way those things lead to vulnerability and visibility, leading to authenticity, I think, feels like um, a really strong basis for being in community with people, right? Where you can be vulnerable and authentic with one another, right? You're creating that kind of space. Um, Lisa, there was there's a, a term that I've I've heard, and Marcy kind of um, pointed it out in in our earlier correspondence that um, the idea that there are no mistakes in improv. Um, 
what does that do for people to, it, to be in a space where there's no mistakes? And, and how does that help? How does that therapeutically, I guess, um, you know, help, help folks out? Yeah, I think it does help a, let go of perfection a lot. I think doing improv helps people let go of perfection because what we do see is that when things go perfectly in a scene, the scene's okay, right? What we see is when things go imperfectly in the scene, the scene's hilarious. Mm. And so right away we get that feel of like, oh, so mistakes are gifts and my character being imperfect is a gift. And this is what where the vulnerability comes in. I'm willing to show that. And where uh, the visibility comes in, like, hey, they're laughing and they're responding to the fact that I'm willing to play this imperfect character in this imperfect scene. And I always point out when that happens to my students that now wouldn't that have been a, a much less interesting scene if it had gone perfectly. Is that why we love watching outtakes of The Office? Yes. That- <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. All day long. <laughs> yeah, that that sense of um, that there's a holiness, for lack of a better term, in imperfection, I think, sometimes. Um, and that, Yeah, go ahead, Brian. Yeah. And also, I never really identified with being a perfectionist growing up and I do now as I've deconstructed things and I'm reconstructing things. But what I have always dealt with and I've identified with is expectations. So that's like the cousin to perfectionism or what we, what I think Lisa's getting at. Cause when you're improvising and if you have expectations for things, it, it blows that no, those notions out of the water and in a positive way, you know, I mean, we don't even call them mistakes necessarily or lack of a perfect scene. It's they're gifts. They're always gifts. Yeah. But, um, cause it's always the sauce is yes. And it's going to be me and at least one other person creating together. So my expectations for whatever we're going to create together are going to change if I'm using yes. And, and the thing that gets created, it's like, I couldn't have created on my own. You couldn't have created on your own Joe, but we just did this thing together. There's no way I could even had expectations for that thing. And it was very enjoyable. That just happens. And if there's an audience watching, it's enjoyable for them to them for some reason too. You know, it, it occurs to me if we had a physicist in the room, we could talk about quantum entanglement and and how all this kind of fits together. That idea of the sum being more than the parts of the whole, right? That that draws all that together. Um, man, this is so this is such fascinating, um, fascinating stuff. Marcy, I wanted to to kind of um, come back to something you said, kind of in your introduction when you were talking about um, improv for clergy specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you see the intersection, I guess, the, the, the spiritual connection, I guess, between improv and faith. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean, you know, cause you said you're, you know, it's an interfaith group. It doesn't necessarily mean specifically Christian faith, mm-hmm. but faith in general, where, where does that, um, intersection come about in your mind? So uh, the way that I conceive of being ordained as a clergy member is that you are called from a community and called to minister to a community. And there are all of these really beautiful, mysterious, wonderful, rich treasures in our traditions. And we learn a language set to try to speak of a mystery. And this is true, I think, of all formal religious traditions is that you are trying to speak of a mystery and you are taught a language set within the construct of your specific tradition to describe some of these beautiful mysteries. And what I hope happens when people come into this improv space 
is that they experience some of these same mysteries happening in terms of the way our community is formed together in terms of vulnerability, authenticity, feeling beloved, all of these things that they may have a language set that they learned in their specific tradition, but now they're learning a new language set to describe some of the same things that are happening. They're, they're learning the language of improv, but they're still feeling this sense of kinship and community and belovedness and this, this spark of creativity within them and the imagination to consider what may be possible or this idea of becoming or letting go or whatever is needed. All of these things that I think happen in spirituality and in, in, in traditional faith communities at their best, whether you're talking about things happening in a, in a Jewish temple or things happening in a mainline Protestant church, that it's some of these very similar mysteries that we all have a tradition and a history and a heritage and a language set for those that are in traditional settings to describe these things. And I would contend that these same things are happening in our improv space with your peers across different traditions, but now you're learning the language of improv to describe mm. these things that are happening. And it's very powerful to be taken outside of your own group and reforged or reformed into a new group and to experience yet again, or maybe even with brand new eyes, things that you have experienced in other places with new language. Mm. Wow. It, it strikes me that there is, um, there's something about, and maybe Lisa, you might be able to speak to this. It, there's something about humor and laughter that I think help us break down things that might normally sort of separate us. Right. Um, and, and that, that might, you know, again, talking about community, right. How, how do those things bring us together? What is it about, um, I'm, there's probably neurological reasons and psychological reasons and all of that, but, um, there seems to be when we can laugh together, when we can tell jokes together, that somehow helps us transcends some of those artificial, um, ways that we divide ourselves. Absolutely. We can laugh together. We can find things we have in common. We can also laugh together as we're learning new things about each other. I know my parents always told me laughter was the best medicine. And um, I kind of believe that it's definitely a, a great way to be able to heal yourself a little bit and also make those connections with other people that we so long for. That's also probably people like me. Um who are Enneagram sevens use humor to <laughs> deflect from difficult <laughs> conversations and things, but it does, it does have that ability to kind of overcome um, some of the tensions in the moment. That, that sort of leads me to, to another thing I wanted to ask you all about in the work you do. Um, it, when, when you're, I think um, Lisa, I think you mentioned in the intro that some of the work you do is like with police departments and things like that. Um, I, I would love to hear a little bit about how, um, the work you do with, specifically with law enforcement folks um, is is helping maybe the connections between law enforcement officers and the communities that they're serving in, because that feels like kind of a big yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. So in Chicago, um, there is crisis intervention training for police officers and um, people can request and make sure if they're calling 
police because of a situation that is a mental health situation more so than like a crime or there's somebody who's in a mental health crisis, um, you can in Chicago request for an officer that's been through that training, which I think is really helpful, right? So it's one of the things that we teach is that people have the right to request that when they're calling an officer. Um, and what we do in our crisis intervention training, the improv part of it is uh, we do a lot of empathy exercises that build empathy. We do a lot of listening exercises so that when they are, um, you know, dealing with a situation that they're really taking the time to listen to the person um, and then to empathize with them uh, and then to be able to communicate with them um, in a way that is positive and that, you know, it, it de-escalates a situation at the same time in a respectful way that like hopefully, you know, in a way that will have everybody feeling okay about the situation, right? And one of the things we say to the cops is um, uh, like how much paperwork is involved when there's an altercation, right? A physical altercation, so much paperwork. Like, well, how much paperwork is involved when you can de-escalate the situation verbally? They're like, no paperwork. And so we're like, right? So let's do some improv because we're gonna hopefully help you have less paperwork. So it's one of the ways that we get them around to uh, embracing the work that we do with them. That's that's just so brilliant. Just, I, you know, being able to imagine even how improv can help, you know, uh, somebody come into a situation and immediately start to see it in a different way than their previous training might have had them view that situation. Have you had any feedback along those lines from, from the folks you've worked with? Absolutely. They say it really helps. They love using yes and as a tool. Um, so at personally, they've said uh, they've used it in personal situations and it's worked nicely as well as professionally. So that's nice. Yeah, yeah. It's a, Brian, did you want? Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, it's a growing, growing area too. Like um, directly related to the the trainings that Lisa and Angela do. And I had to be a part of for one last summer. It was excellent. Um, you know, um, improvisers are, are are being used to role play then with these departments in these same trainings or similar trainings to then play those people in crisis. You know, somebody who is suicidal, holding a knife, or in psychosis holding it up, you know, you know, doing something that's dangerous, but it's out of protection you know, people who aren't breaking laws, but need intervention. And through the magic of just saying yes, and to life and recover in recovery, and working with improv therapy group and Angela, who can't be with us today, she got me working with like NAMI National Alliance on Mental Illness as one of those role players. So I get to actually use improv and my lived experience of my twenties, which were pretty dark and, um, and, and get to just chew on some scenes with the cops and, and yell at them. But it's all in the nature to work on the tools that Lisa and Angela and others are training officers on with pure improv, you know, working on, you know, so an officer can't relate with me holding a knife because the shadow people that the government sent to kill me are outside. Right. Yeah. Yeah. How do you relate to somebody? Well, you can yes. And into the emotions you're seeing, you can emotional label. So when Lisa's talking about the communication skills after the listening, that's a, that's another step that comes in those trainings and in those law enforcement areas is then, you know, it's tools they have, it's tools we all have, but we can sharpen them with improv, with, mm -hmm. with, with games, with processing, and then in these role plays as well. And then selfishly for me, it's like psychodrama for me 
and it's help. It's good for my wellness, you know. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to add on with that. Yeah, yeah, and I, you know, as imagining coming in, you know, as as a um, as a role player, your ability to to empathize then with um, the law enforcement officer or whoever it is you're working for, right? To empathize with their world a little bit, like the the way that opens up channels of communication that we don't see, we don't see that being played out in our media at all. All we ever see is conflict and confrontation. They don't cover this cool stuff. Yeah, I know. Right? One of my that's why you things, have. I'm not. That's why you have the Accidental Tomatoes podcast, folks. To yeah, to they, cover this cool stuff. It yeah. doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't lead, I guess. But I mean, the departments are working on these progressive things. It's not being covered. Yeah. A little opinion in there. Sure, sure. That's that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Um, so what what would and this is for any of you, I guess, um, what would a typical kind of improv therapy session, whether it's you know, general improv therapy or, or Marcy if it's improv for clergy, what what does a session look like? If if somebody out there is listening to this and say, you know, I'm really kind of interested in this, they go to your website, um, what can they expect? I'll speak to this from the improv for clergy side of the house. So what they can expect is they can expect to be in a group of their peers in a group of between six and 12 people in a room. So a pretty intimate group in a virtual zoom room, they can expect people of different experience levels. So there are people in our classes that literally can barely spell the word improv, but they were adventurous and curious and humble and wanted Has to that give been it on a- wordle yet have we had improv yet on wordle i don't yeah, so. <laughs> I, I, I don't know um and they and then there are some people that have actual theater backgrounds maybe that are also clergy members and so we take all comers people of all levels are invited into these groups they can expect some sort of warm-up activity to get them comfortable with the space so something very low low threat low vulnerability low in terms of what we're asking from them, but just simple, like nibble, take a little nibble and participate and get comfortable with yourself and your peers. They can expect us to kind of slowly ramp things up into something that requires a little more energy and physicality. So like a game that may require physical gestures on Zoom. And incidentally with this, I want to invite those who may have different mobility concerns that we, this is fully adaptive. And so we honor whatever your physical boundaries are. So don't think just because you got a bad shoulder or you got a bad knee that you can't do improv. That's not true. So even when we do games that require physicality, we can adapt them to the circumstances and the people in our Zoom room. And then we may move from our, our, you know, get the energy going, get get the vibes, you know, good to a game where they're going to take some risks, maybe a character scene or maybe a game where they're going to put something together and, you know, display it for us in real time and really take some of those improv risks. And the secret sauce of improv is that it doesn't necessarily have to be ha ha laugh out loud funny. The humor is found in the art of authenticity. So the more you put Mm. yourself out there, the more you work with your peers and collaborate, the more you live into yes and you will be amazed at the result of a scene or a story. You, you can't pre-plan or script. The magic moments just come in people trusting each other and exploring in a scene. And I think from here, maybe I want to pivot to, I'd love for Lisa and Brian 
to just add if they have a little something, something they want to add to what I just said. I just want to add real quick before Lisa, because um, just adding on to you, the cool thing with that, with everything Marcy just said is when you bring these people together in any space, whether it's clergy or wherever, is um, you don't get a soup when you combine all these ingredients that people bring from their own lives, because that's what shows up. We're authentic. We're bringing in our own parts. You get a stew, you know, or mm. even a salad. You get you get acculturation. You don't get assimilation. And as far as going back to the question earlier like about improv community and support, the amount that I've learned just doing improv and being in jams or Zooms teacher or student or what have you, um, people bring their own experiences into the pot and then you're told to yes and and you learn a lot. Like I talked about that bubble, that that's how that bubble got popped. And it happened quickly mm. for me. And I think it can happen if you're doing the yes and stuff. So as far as uh, to answer your original question, yes, let's go to Lisa because Marcy's <laughs> clergy format is excellent. And then Lisa also is, I, I, I've, I'm the co-teacher that plays with both their formats. <laughs> I like yeah, I like, I like that description of a stew or a salad too, because yeah. that's got texture, right? That's got, that's got some texture to it. That's, nothing, nothing disappears into it. It all stays. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I think is magical about improv is, and the reason it works so well with so many different people at wherever they are in their lives, is because it's not like we, the improv teachers, are making them do things or say things or telling them what to do or telling them what to say. These exercises, these exercises invite them to be their authentic selves, to share what they want to share. They want to create a goofy character, that's great. If they just want to tell a story from their life experiences, that's great. If they just want to laugh with other folks um, or be playful or make those connections, like all we do is sort of facilitate the exercises that help uh, give them the opportunity to take it wherever they take it and to have fun with it and to be their authentic selves. I think part of the thing, though, that works so well about having groups that kind of are in a similar situation, like improv for clergy, is that, like you were saying, Joe, is just we already have some common ground that we might find a lot of humor in together. Right. Like we have a little bit of inside jokes right off the bat, some shared experiences that we may be able to bond with and find some humor in right away. Um, it certainly works with people from any background. But when you have a sort of a similar um, occupation or situation, we, we find that we, we get those laughs going like right away once we start to realize, oh, yeah, that happens with you, too. Me, too. And let's find some humor in that. Yeah, the, the the comfort zone of commonality yeah. has got to be really, really helpful in that. Um, Marcy, I wanted to, to ask you kind of specifically, you and I talked about this a little bit before we started um, the recording, since this is um, one of our Pride Month episodes, and you had talked about, um, you know, how improv has been helpful for folks in the LGBTQ community. And um, I just wanted to, to give you a chance to speak a little bit into that. Um, into in, into that um, space there a little bit. Absolutely. So I, I want to preface this. I, I want to tell a little bit about my story. So when I got ordained in 2008, the Presbyterian Church, I considered myself at that time a straight ally. And I all around me, there was this very contentious atmosphere swirling as the church was moving closer and closer to making decisions 
around whether our clergy could or could not uh, preside at the weddings of, of same-sex couples. And so there was this real us and them mentality. So I, and I, and the church actually that sent me was a church that ultimately decided to leave the denomination in lieu of a more conservative denomination. And I was moving toward churches that were more open at the time. So I, I felt sort of caught in this sort of stew, just this cultural stew of what was going on. Now, flash forward, and I had been a straight ally for a long time, kind of doing things here and there along the terms of LGBTQ advocacy. Then I got ordained. Then I'm involved with churches and I'm making space for LGBTQ organizations of different kinds to come in, to speak, to, to preach and teach. Uh, in the midst of this, I had my own sense of awakening and it wasn't quick. It was actually very slow. It was, you know, well, of course there's some uh, flexibility in my sense of sexuality, right? Like as a, as a straight woman, of course I'm attracted to women sometimes. Of course I'm not a zero on the Kinsey scale. I'm a one or a two. And, and what happened is this kind of my own boundaries started stretching eventually. It wasn't too long before, before I finally started asking the question. And am I even, am I a straight woman or what's the line between straight and queer? And like, am I straddling this line? Am I over the line? And so it took a couple of years for me really to sort of feel definitive and settled in this idea. Oh, maybe I'm straight is too constricting um, in terms of language around me. I'm, I'm actually a bisexual woman. And that took a few years. And I was, I was basically when I came out, I was then ahead of the churches that I was leading who they were kind of sort of okay with me being a straight ally, but now I had, you know, gone past what they could, could navigate or manage. Mm -hmm. And so there was some real rejection for a couple of years on the part of these churches that were like, yeah, you've, that's a bridge too far. We could kind of handle you when you were a straight ally and on your own time, you were doing all this stuff to support LGBTQ people. But now you're saying that you're the B and that's even scarier to us in some ways than the L or the G, like we have no idea what's going on. And so there's a lot of rejection from churches that I'd previously worked with to me and with a lot of these LGBT organizations that I was working with, they were looking for pastors who had power and platform and capability basically to build and lift their platforms. And so in a sense, it was, it almost felt like a double rejection as a, as a spiritual mm -hmm. leader, because now my community didn't want me in, in the world that I now lived in uh, because I was too progressive, too, too far and the organizations that I was working with, I wasn't really the market or demographic that they were looking to work with either because I couldn't offer them the thing that they had come to me wanting, which was they wanted my space, they wanted fundraising, they wanted mm -hmm. platform power amplification. And so I, I felt kind of like an orphan out on the margins. And, and then there's this whole cottage industry that has sprung up around LGBTQ and church concerns and where I had previously worked with those as a leader, as a pastor, now they were marketing to me as a potential client or as a potential um, recipient of their services. And that didn't feel really good either. It felt mm. like a boundary violation because I wanted to do my work and I wanted to be known for my work as a pastor and I wanted to be valued for all that I brought to the table 
as a leader. And I would have given my right eye for a space like this improv for clergy space as a healing space, as a space where I could come and be valued for the leadership role that I still held. I was still a pastor. I was still ordained even when I was between churches or between ministry opportunities. And I wanted to be acknowledged and respected in my chosen vocation as such. But I also needed a space where I could just laugh after all of that seriousness, where I could find some healing, where I could make some new connections and meet some new people and network and trade ideas and where I could rebuild a little bit of my own confidence and have my own creativity and ingenuity stoked and sparked. And what the places that ended up being very healing to me uh, on the heels of that traumatic event of coming out and feeling kind of that sense of rejection and, and homelessness, they were creative spaces. They were not spaces affiliated with the church. They were actually not even spaces affiliated with LGBTQ orgs. They, they were spaces that allowed me and gave me permission to be creative. And I don't, I don't want to diminish either the church because, or LGBTQ orgs, because there are some amazing progressive churches doing amazing things for LGBTQ folks. And there are some amazing LGBTQ organizations who are saving lives with the work that they do. So this is not to disparage either churches who are out there somewhere in the process moving towards uh, becoming affirming or LGBTQ organizations who are out there advocating for LGBTQ causes. But this is just in terms of finding a way back home for me. It was art spaces, creative spaces where I could rebuild, regain confidence and then figure out for myself what's going to come next. And so while our improv for clergy space is not explicitly an LGBTQ space, it is a safe space for people yeah. who are both straight or anywhere on the LGBTQ continuum to come and find community with their peers and play and create and learn things that will bolster them and build them up, whether they're going to go back into some sort of traditional church setting or whether they're going to take a leap or take a risk to start their own ministry or their own new venture. Wow. That, and I, I assume that that translates um, into the broader like improv therapy um, arena as well, right? That, that folks, whether it's LGBTQ folks or folks who are marginalized in any number of ways um, that, that improv therapy uh, could be a really helpful kind of tool. Absolutely. I mean, even even a, a class usually will kick off a lot of courses and classes will kick off with um, some version of a, a consent or a boundary check. Right. So even, you know, in week one of your eight week class, whether you're with the clergy or the therapist, you know, and it's a safe space, you know, we some 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 heavy stuff gets shared in week one. Um, uh, not because we tell them to, but because I got we created a safe enough or brave enough space for it. But but from there, it, it's a weight off your shoulders immediately. This is uh, this is also amazing, and I, I I'm starting to get a feeling this might be part one of a multi-part <laughs> <laughs> conversation because we are we are kind of getting near the end of our time. Uh, I really appreciate all all of you being with me today um, for this for this interview for this uh, really really important and meaningful 
conversation. Um, Lisa, I'm going to kind of give you the last word here. Um, how can folks find out more about Improv Therapy Group and how to get involved and, and, and reach out to to you all to, to make contact. Yeah, great. We are at improvtherapygroup.com and you'll find the improv for clergy classes there, improv for therapists, improv for lots of different folks. And if you we don't if you don't see the class that matches you, tell us because we're constantly offering new things. So especially uh, starting, I, I would think in the fall, there'll be a lot of new offerings as well. But improvtherapygroup.com. Outstanding. Outstanding. Well, thanks again to all. Of, yeah, go ahead, Brian. I was just say, jump in. When you go to that website, I think you'll get a prompt even like sign up for our newsletter and you just type in your email and that'll send you updates because starting July or August, we're going to be doing things like improv for self-care uh, run by me and another awesome teacher with the company um, for anybody to just come and, and healing power of laughter. We have fun and um, just announcements like that will show up in your email without you having to check if you go to the website and just plug it in there. Outstanding. And we'll, we'll include that link um, in our show notes so people can jump right over and, uh, and find you on the interwebs. So thanks again to all three of you, uh, Marcy and Lisa and Brian. I, I so greatly appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk with me today. Um, I, I really have a feeling that this conversation will continue at some point in the future. Uh, so don't be surprised if you get an email saying let's, uh, let's do something again. So thanks again, everyone, and uh, have a great day. That was that was such a super interesting conversation with Marcy and Lisa and Brian um, to to think about all of the various ways that improv uh, can be used um, in, in a lot of the context that we find ourselves in today. I'm really grateful to all three of them for joining me for this episode, and I hope you'll go uh, check out their webpage and and find out more about the services that they're offering. As always, if you have comments or feedback or suggestions uh, about this episode or any future episodes, please feel free to reach out to us on our social media channels. Just do a search for Accidental Tomatoes and you can drop us a note there or you can send us an email to accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, keep on growing outside the fences and join us for another brand new episode of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.